Welcome. Thanks for joining me today for another of our Wednesdays in the Word as together we unfold God's Word together. We're in the midst of an extended study of the book of Romans, working our way through it verse by verse. We're in the third chapter now, and I want to pick up our reading in verse 23 and read on through verse 26. Some verses we've already begun to unfold, and I hope it will continue to be profitable for you as we look at them even more extensively. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. And it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who places his faith in Jesus Christ. Well, if you've been with me, and I hope you have been, uh, you've been discovering that from about the middle of chapter 1 up to the current point, the continuing multiply underlined issue of the book of Romans has been that all have sinned, and as a consequence, all have fallen short of the glory of God, just as in verse 23 I just read to you. One of the consequences of that truth, which God has gone great lengths to make plain to all of us beyond any shadow of discussion or argument, is to remind us that the issue is not only that all are less than perfect, but that it matters that they're less than perfect because all face accountability before God. And in fact, relationship with God, not only here, but eternal relationship with the God who is really there, requires that we be sinless. It requires that we be righteous and holy like him. And therefore, all people, from the beginning of human history to the current moment, are actually separated from the God who is really there. More than that, all are facing ultimately an accountability for their lives. As Hebrews 9 puts it, it's appointed unto man once to die and after that to face judgment. All of us are sinners before God. We vary from one another as human beings and how terribly immoral we may have become. But none of us differs from one another in the fact that we are all guilty of sin. And at the very least, all of us have broken the greatest of the commandments, which was to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. So all of us face an impossible circumstance. And Romans 1.16 began all of this very extensive discussion with this message. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. <laughs> Only the gospel is powerful enough to save us who are sinners, which means all of us. Now, in verse 24 that I read to you, there are two words that we encounter, the word justified and the word redemption. Last time, we looked more extensively at the first of those words, the word justified. The word justified means to stand righteous before God, 
to be acquitted of any charge against us. Now, how can you and I, who the scriptures already made plain are sinners, how could you and I possibly stand before God free of the charge? How could we possibly be perceived as not guilty? And the answer to that was found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, where we learn that God made him who knew no sin, meaning Jesus Christ, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become or be made the righteousness of God. When you and I, accepting God's uh, diagnosis of our life that we are sinners who fall short of his glory and are culpable before him. When you and I accept that truth and then place our faith in Jesus Christ and his work on the cross on our behalf, God says, I will apply that perfect life that the Lord Jesus Christ has lived to you. Both do that right now and forevermore, that will be the criteria by which you stand before me. What an amazing truth to be justified. As Romans 5 begins, it says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. <laughs> In other words, you could even translate it, we have peace with God at long last. There is no peace apart from being justified. Peace with God requires that something has been done to address the sin problem in our lives. Now today, I want to pick up on the second of the words that we encounter in verse 24. Are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. What is this word redemption all about? God's amazing solution for our sin has both the issue of justification involved in it, but also the issue of being redeemed. <laughs> this word redemption is a very rich word. It translates a Greek word, which means in some settings to release by a payment of ransom. Somebody that's captive and can't get out of their captivity unless a ransom is paid for them. In other cases, the word Redemption describes the process of buying back something that was lost. Here's the point. You and I all need God to rescue us, <laughs> to pay a ransom for us, to bring us back because we are all lost. We are all under the penalty of sin. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That was the point of these verses. Only Christ's death on the cross provides a way to be redeemed for those who need redeemed. And understand once again, at the risk of being redundant, the scripture makes it very plain, all men and women need redeemed. No one can stand before God based on their own life. Why? Because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and therefore accountable before God. Only Christ's work on the cross on our behalf Remember 2 Corinthians 5.21, making him sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might be made the righteousness of God. Only Christ's death on the cross provides this wonderful redemption. As verse 25 begins, it tells us, Christ's shed blood became the propitiation for those very sins that you and I have committed. This word propitiation 
translates a Greek word which means satisfaction. Satisfaction in the sense of paying off the claims of an injury. Christ's blood, in other words, shed for you, shed for me, satisfied the claims against us. Remember, the claims under which we stood condemned before God. Our ransom, our pardon, our redemption is all tied to the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ on that cross on our behalf. Think about how it's put for us back in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. Let me read those verses. Knowing that you have been ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. I've been ransomed, you've been ransomed, if you've turned to Christ, because of Christ's shed blood, his precious blood, like a lamb without blemish or spot, has been shed on my behalf and on your behalf. First John chapter 1, I'm sorry, chapter 2 begins with these verses, verses 1 and 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. He's writing to believers here, by the way, not unbelievers. He says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, and of course, that's one of the sad aspects of life as a redeemed believer. At times we stumble, at times we sin. He says, we have an advocate with the Father or a defender before the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he is the, here's the word again, propitiation for our sins and not for ours only but also for the sins of the whole world christ's death on the cross on our behalf paid for sin it propitiated it satisfied the claims it delivered us from accountability for the sin and stumbling of our lives what an amazing truth you and i as we turn to jesus christ in faith in a sense, throwing ourselves on his cross, on his shed blood on the cross, God says the result of that is that you will be justified. In other words, I will take your sins and put it on him and take the perfect life he lived and put it on you. And you will also be redeemed. I will ransom you back. I will rescue you from the penalty of sin. I will satisfy the claims of sin against you. Therein is the miracle of the gospel. No wonder in chapter 1, verse 16, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it's the power of God unto salvation to all, everyone who believes. We pick up on that last note because it's repeated again here. God's solution for sin, the cross, the shed blood of the Lord Jesus, the perfect lamb without spot or blemish who died on our behalf. That work on the cross, that solution for sin, that gospel, must be appropriated by faith by people. The central role of faith is underscored in these verses. It must be received by faith, is the terminology used as the ESV translates verse 25 to be received by faith. Now listen, don't miss the point. 
This amazing work of the gospel, this unbelievable outcome of Christ going to the cross on our behalf, shedding his blood, giving his life, will only help someone if they receive it by faith. So, don't let these amazing truths be merely something intellectual to you. No, God is calling for a response to it in your life and in my life. Let's look at this faith that's being talked about, where this is received by faith. This word pisteuo in the Greek, faith, means to be persuaded, to show belief or trust in something, to have confidence in something. Forms of that word, pistis or pisteuo in the Greek, occur more than 500 times in the New Testament. <laughs> Obviously, the New Testament is all about placing faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The context in which the word is used varies a little bit the nuance of the meaning from trusting in or relying upon, committing oneself to something, accepting something is true. But the same thread runs through all of them. Something we respond to and are persuaded about. One of the things that we need to understand about this word is that this word pistes or pisteuo is a noun that requires a direct object. Now, what do I mean? Faith, in the Greek sense, as it's translated here in these passages, the issue of faith becomes who or what one places faith in, who or what one has trusted in, accepted, committed to. That is the issue. That is the underlying distinction. Who or what is one placing their faith in? There's a great misunderstanding of people in humanity and in the world around us and sometimes even among believers. There's the misunderstanding that only Christians or certain individuals have faith. The truth of the matter is, biblically, everybody has faith. Everybody. Everybody is confident about something. Everybody is trusting and accepting something is true. Everybody is committing themselves to something or someone as being true, everybody has faith. In fact, in our contemporary culture, some people even have faith in faith. What do I mean by that? Well, that means they believe that if somebody simply has the characteristic of faith, the ability to trust, that somehow that's a redemptive thing and God is pleased with them having it. Brothers and sisters, God does not care if you have faith. Everybody has faith in something. God cares what you have faith in. That's the distinguishing characteristic. When we find here the passage saying to be received by faith, it is a faith focused on that gospel. It is a confidence in that gospel. Salvation requires that people choose to refocus their faith onto the gospel message instead of whatever they've been trusting in before. Most people trust in their own righteousness, or they trust in their religious activities, or they trust in some religious rite they've been through, or on and on the list goes. We could certainly have seen that in the preceding chapters, describing the pervasiveness of sin and the impossible condition that people are in, not able to solve their sin problem by the normal means. Salvation requires faith, that ability to trust, be purposely focused on the Lord Jesus Christ and his work on the cross on our behalf.
In fact, evangelism, witness, is convincing people to place their faith in Jesus Christ. It's not about convincing them to have faith. Everybody's got it. Evangelism is telling somebody this ability to rest and trust, you've got that already because all your life you've been resting in something or trusting in something. God is calling for you to stop trusting in whatever that was and start trusting in Christ, your Savior, the one who has died on the cross on your behalf. Start resting and trusting in him. No other faith, quote, will redeem one or justify one. Only faith in Jesus Christ and his work on the cross, his shed blood, does that. Therefore, evangelism is all about encouraging people to take faith, which all have, and determine to turn away from what they've been trusting in and start trusting in the message and the truth of the gospel message. Each person must personally choose to place their faith in Jesus Christ and his work. Otherwise, they have no solution for sin. Sin's solution is not faith. Sin's solution is faith in the gospel, in Jesus Christ, in his work on the cross. Do you see that distinction? So important, especially in our contemporary culture. Now, in verses 25 and 26, we read these words. Whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. These two verses, verse 25, give us some critical understandings of this gospel of Christ's death on the cross. And let's look at them. The cross, Christ's death on the cross, first of all, enabled God, as it puts it here, to pass over our former sins. To pass over them. You and I know we've committed them. But the gospel enables God to pass over them. Now this word, Passover, is a wonderful word. Some of you may already recognize it in your ear and say, hey, isn't that something that happened to the Jews as they were in Egypt, getting ready to leave on their Exodus journey? And of course the answer is yes. As we study it in the book of Exodus, the Passover was a time where when a believing Jew would sacrifice the lamb that was given them to sacrifice and then take the blood of it, put it on the doorposts of their home, and then go inside the home doing all of those actions, then it said the death angel, which was sent to kill all the firstborn, would pass over the home in which blood was on the doorposts of the home. A Jew wasn't saved because they were a Jew. A Jew would be saved in the Exodus experience if they acted on the command of God to, to sacrifice the lamb and put the blood on the doorposts of their home and go in it. Do you see how faith is demonstrated? <laughs> Acting on it. The promise here is that in a very similar fashion and a much more profound way, really, those who have chosen to place their faith in Jesus Christ and his work on the cross will have that experience of the passing over. Well, what's, pay, what's passing over? Appearing before the judgment seat, having to answer for our sin, an impossible thing to answer for. God says, I'll pass over you. I will pass over your former sins if you're resting in what Jesus Christ 
has done for you on the cross. Isn't that an amazing truth? The second of the things it says is that cross, the cross and the work of Christ showed God's righteousness in a very dramatic way. His righteousness, the righteousness of the God who's really there, who created us, is seen in his law, first of all, for which he is holding us accountable. When we become a lawbreaker, we're sinners. His holiness is demonstrated by the fact that he has to be separated from sin. There's our dilemma. We are sinners and as a result are separated from God. The justice of God and other of the attributes of the God who is really there is seen by requiring a penalty for the sin that's been committed. You and I, because of the very nature of God, needed nothing less than the perfect life of the very Son of God, Jesus Christ, to be credited to us that life he gave in the blood he shed on the cross to rest in it and have the consequence of it benefiting us, which is what justification was all about. The outcome of all of that, this passage says, is that this cross, this work of Christ, enabled God the Father to be both, as it puts it here, just and the justifier. Let me explain that a little bit more. Here's a question that people ask, even related to that question. How can a just and holy God overlook and forgive sin? Here's the issue. God can't set aside any part of who he is. The various attributes of God, the essence of God. You remember, he is loving. He is also just and holy and righteous and so on. He can't stop being any of those things. He is who he is. I am who I am, is the way the scripture puts it. His love for the sinner, his desire even in that love to send his son to die for them on the cross, can't set aside his holiness, his righteousness, or his justice. Something was necessary to pay the penalty for that sinner that God loved. Something was necessary to change that sinner into righteous person. So how did God do that? How in the world could the God who was really there remain just and still be a justifier of those previously guilty? And of course, the great answer is the power of the gospel the power of God unto salvation. Christ's righteous life satisfied the law's demands. His death, the shedding of his blood and his death on the cross satisfied the penalty required for all of sin and rebellion. And only the very Son of God could have done that. You see, a perfect man could only have saved himself because the basic requirement to be saved was to be perfect. So even if there was a perfect man, which there never was apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, all they could have done is save themselves, not done anything for me or for you. But the perfect Son of God, the Word made flesh and dwelt among us, as John 1 puts it, the perfect Son of God could offer his perfect life and then apply it to the dead of sinners because it was God dying for us. Do you see the wonder of that? Now you say, well, I can't quite grasp all of that. Well, I, that's fine. I can't quite grasp it all either at all of its implications, but I understand the basic point. 
And the basic point is what drives me to faith and rest in Jesus Christ, even in the midst of some of my confusion. Lord, I can't see how all the details quite work out, but I see the big principle. <laughs> and you're making it plain to me that you can be just and a justifier because of what you did through sending your son into this world. I'm going to trust in that son. I'm going to rest in the work that he has done for me. By the way, this is the very reason why it is absolutely wrong and an error for someone to think about Jesus as being merely a good man. If all he was was a good man, a great moral teacher, some sort of positive example for humanity, if that's all he was, even a perfect life on his part would only save him. It wouldn't help us at all, except in an indirect way by some sort of example setting. No, no. Jesus Christ had to be more than merely a man, or his work wouldn't have helped us. Isn't it amazing? As John 1 puts it, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then in verse 14 of John 1, it says, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus, the very Son of God, the God-man, had to be more than a man. And therefore, the consequence of all of this is that the cross permitted God to be both the just and the justifier of the one who places their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Awe-inspiring. No wonder Paul said, I'm not ashamed of that message. That's the message of power, the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. Now, the final couple verses in chapter 3 pick up on a couple of questions. Questions prompted by all of this. One of those questions is, well, can't I do something then for my salvation? Or does the gospel apply to everybody? And how does the, does the gospel somehow make keeping the law unimportant? So important questions. We'll turn attention to them, Lord willing, the next time we meet as we conclude our study of the third chapter. But let me end today by asking you a question. Have you chosen, chosen now, because that's what it's all about, have you chosen to benefit from the power of the gospel? Have you chosen, made a choice inside to stop trusting in what you may have been trusting in before? Your good efforts, your religious activities, your religious sacraments, or even the fact that you can even trust as an end in itself, faith in faith? Have you stopped trusting in that stuff and instead accepted God's diagnosis of your life as hopeless and helpless and apart from God in this world and said, I need Jesus. And now I'm choosing to place my confidence and rest and trust in what you're telling me in the gospel Jesus did on my behalf. I'm going to do that. Have you chosen personally to benefit from this great exchange that I've been talking about out of 2 Corinthians 5.21? For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Listener today, if you've not made that choice, make it today. I intend, Lord willing, to be able to share again next week, but God could take me between now and then. I... I may not ever have an opportunity to talk to you again. And you may never be in a place to hear it again. Believe 
in Jesus Christ in his work on the cross on your behalf. Turn from whatever else you've been trusting in and choose to trust in him. You do that, even if the Lord takes me before I see you next time. I will see you, and there will be a time together in the presence of the Lord where we'll be able to rejoice in the salvation we both have found. God bless, and may all of these things crystallize in your heart as the Holy Spirit does that, so that you will act on the message that is so eternally important, the message of the gospel.